It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. So last week, to that end... I put on a suit and tie and headed to the City of London. There, I met Professor Anand Menon, Director of UK and a Changing Europe in one of the many coffee shops in the Square Mile. Uh, He bought me a cappuccino. We then headed to the gleaming headquarters of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry. And there, we met up with Nicole Sykes, Head of EU Negotiations at the CBI. We were talking to her just a few days after the CBI had made an intervention, as they put it, into the Brexit debate. The gist of that intervention was that the CBI wants the UK to stay in the customs union. And they warned that lots of businesses, lots of their members, are having to make decisions about what they're going to do, how they're going to uh, exist after Brexit. And we talk about what that actually means in the podcast. Anand had had his Weetabix on the morning in question, I would say. Or maybe it was the uh, pre-podcast coffee that we had enjoyed. But he opened proceedings with a fairly pointed question. Why don't either of our big political parties like businesses anymore? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's entirely true, um, but I do think there is a big problem with how business is portrayed, sometimes which is fair, but sometimes which isn't. Um, So I think there can be this big focus on um, the kind of sports directors of the world, which um, cloud how the rest of business is perceived. Um, whereas realistically, what a lot of companies are doing are investing and creating jobs. And we've got this really interesting piece of research, actually, into public perceptions. And you talk about their employer, and they really like them. In general, they like their employer, they like how they work with them, even if they're the biggest company in the country. Do they just say that because they're worried about getting sacked? Everyone says they like their boss, don't they? Um, on YouGov. Okay. You know, this isn't, this isn't our company saying it. This was an independent poll. All right. But actually, if you set it out in the main, do they like big business? No. Do they like small business? Yes. Um, do they think small businesses contribute more to their communities? Yes. Is that actually factually true? No. Actually, if you go down to, um, I don't know, like a high street community event or something, and, you know, the small businesses on the high street have probably uh, contributed like the raffle prizes. Yeah. But it's Asda or the co-op who have then funded the whole actual event and sponsored it. You know, there's, there's this big perception problem. And actually, businesses need to sort it out. Like, I'm not defending it. Business mm. needs to do their part to communicate what they're doing to actually change that perception. Um, and only if we do that are we going to be able to defend... But when you call it properly. a perception problem, the implication mm-hmm. is that people are seeing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you think about what people seem to associate with big business now, I mean, there was that FT splash about that president's dinner or whatever it's called, where several of your members were, you know. So it's, it's grouping women, it's avoiding taxes, it's mistreating employees. I mean, the headlines haven't been good for a while now when it comes to business. Crashing I just the world economy, what, just throw that one in, crashing the world economy. That was and actually, it was interesting, wasn't it, in the referendum campaign, 
the, the Remain side on occasion would say, actually, we better not get business in because no one trusts them and no one will listen to them. I mean, this is a systemic problem you face, isn't it? So we are absolutely living in a fundamentally different world to the one where we, you know, joined the European community in the first place. Back then, you know, you had Sainsbury's flashing pro-European messages yeah. on their on their plastic bags and stuff like this. I think the CBI had a train. They didn't let me have a train. Um, but, you know, it, it was a fundamentally different world. Oh, and the CBI had a train? They had a train. What, in 1970? Yes, they Just did. Just stoking around the country? Yep. With what? The like, EU's brilliant pasted on the side. Pretty much. Like the version of the... Like the, the bus, but on no, Like the bus, exactly. Yep. Wow. That's amazing. Sorry. I, just, <laughs> I couldn't let that go. Well, they had an actual train. Although that train was... How uh, did that, that work? Because the, the railways were privatised in those days. Nevertheless, Not privatised, probably uh, nationalised. There was a train. I wasn't on the train. I wasn't born. No. Well, there's <laughs> an interesting thing. They wouldn't let you have a train. Well, oh, how does that work? Because you'd have thought it'd be easier to have a train in 2016 because the railways have been privatised. Because your members own, you know exactly, yeah, exactly. You know, the likes of Richard Branson, we're like, brilliant. Let's have a big CBI maybe, train. Maybe this is where we went wrong. Maybe, maybe that's we, we didn't pick up the phone to Richard Branson. It would have been better than a bus, wouldn't it? Come on, train <laughs> trumps a bus every time. Wow, well, Branson to blame for Brexit. No, oh. there's the headline. Careful, we won't sue us or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, the, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't let the train thing go. But yeah, to re- to return to the point, exactly that there there was an issue during the referendum, wasn't it, with business and how it fitted into the, the campaigns, whether that was leave or, or remain. Mm-hmm. So what went wrong in that regard? Why, you know, why weren't you a bigger part of the campaign? Why didn't you get what you wanted at the end of the, that campaign? So a couple of things, I guess. There's that fundamental problem we've just been talking about in terms of how um, businesses' relationship with people has changed over the last 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. There's then uh, a second problem, which was um, the Scottish referendum. Um, the Scottish referendum was very negative and very divisive, I think. I think everyone would say that on both yes, sides. get in. This is my um, expert subject. Yeah, I think a lot of companies found that experience very difficult, being sort of under attack in a way that um, they weren't expecting. But actually, a lot of companies did speak out, and a lot of companies did so, uh, not necessarily in the papers, but with their employees. Mm-hmm. And they did talk to their employees about this. Um, uh, I certainly know uh, that at least uh, you know several million employees were talked to. Um, by their employers about Brexit. But at the end of the day, you know, people weighed up, is it what my employer is saying? Is it what businesses are saying? Um, Or is it how I feel about other issues? Um, And actually, I think the evidence shows that basically the economic argument was kind of won. Um, I think this is your book, actually, Anand says. You know, the economic... Oh, she's good. (laughs) She's good. Oh, a Scottish referendum and your book in the same podcast. We can have her on again next week, I think. Yeah, every week. But the economic argument was basically won. Um, it was other issues, other social issues that people prioritised over the others. It strikes me that business wanted to have its cake and eat it over the EU. That's to say, while we were in and before we were having a referendum, your members didn't stand up and say to their shareholders or their customers, actually, you ought to appreciate what the EU does to us. It gives us a single market, it gives us a customers union, it's great. Because they thought, well, some of those customers, some of those shareholders are Eurosceptic, why cause trouble? So they kept their heads down in general. Now, all of a sudden, they're fussing because actually no one had got the message. Isn't it partly their fault? So, uh, I, again, I will come back and say I think they did do a lot of work to talk to their employees and uh, actually a lot of companies did come out in the press and say um, uh, that staying in, the ref- in, staying in the EU was... I mean, over the last 20 years, before the referendum campaign, before mm-hmm. the Bloomberg speech, yep. in that whole period we were in, businesses were notoriously very quiet about talking about what membership gave them, mm-hmm. didn't they? Um, I'm not sure necessarily that a CEO would see that as part of his day-to-day job. 
Isn't that partly because we took it for granted as well? Maybe. And, but, 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 and uh, where I think this is really interesting is over rules and regulations um, and how, you know, the biggest things that businesses would say is um, uh, about the EU in a negative sense is, oh, there's this regulation, it's really cumbersome, it's quite burdensome, we're not happy about implementing it. Reach for chemicals mm-hmm. is a really, really good example of this. It's like 800 pages long or something. What is this? Hang on. Reach for chemicals? Yep. What's reach is the directive. That no, Reach is a song by S Club 7. Okay. That's what Reach is. Oh, you're so young. <laughs> um, reach, reach? reach is a regulation for um, chemicals. Chemicals used not only by chemicals companies, ah, but basically okay. most companies right. in manufacturing. Okay. Um, and it basically creates kind of a register so that there is a kind of tracking system for dangerous chemicals, um, it implies some kind of safety rules uh, about brilliant. how they can be handled. It sounds like a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously during its implementation, it came up with some challenges because um, it went against how some companies were operating or how some different member states were operating um, in terms of the way they had chemicals rules. And the EU said, we're going to have one rule for every one of our countries and, and that's how we're going to do things in, in future. So companies grumbled about it. It wasn't, it wasn't popular. We tried to improve it. It wasn't as much as, as they wanted. Now, when they say, okay, you've sunk all these costs, it costs you to implement it. Mm. Um, do you want to stay inside that mm. or do you want to leave it? Overwhelmingly, they're saying, let's stay in it. It was absolute pain. It continues to be a pain. But actually, the benefits of it in terms of um, uh, being able to sell abroad very easily, being able to move things in very easily in our complicated supply chains massively outweigh those costs. Um, and that is now the conversation we're having. So instead of, and, and that wasn't a conversation you had to have before. But isn't that my point? That 20 years of moaning about burdensome regulation without a moment spent saying, but thank God we've got it. It's 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 not a question that they had to they had to come up against before because it, it wasn't you know you're gonna you're gonna leave this and it, yeah I think actually it's one of the good things about Brexit is suddenly you've appreciated what this did maybe it's a bit too late but you did you did get around to appreciating it. There's the question, isn't it too late? Um, let's not rerun the referendum. Let's talk about the intervention that you made at the weekend. Mm-hmm. Why now? I mean, this is the, isn't it a bit too late because the whole thing's got momentum. The whole process is, you know, is running away like a runaway train, like a runaway CBI train. Um, what isn't this a bit late to be making an intervention now? Or perhaps the question is, why at this precise moment? So a number of responses to that. Firstly, um, actually, our companies are under a lot of pressure right now, um, a lot of pressure that we're going to be talking about more and more, um, both currently in terms of what they are currently experiencing. So 40% of our members say that investment has been negatively affected since Brexit. 40% of our members say that recruitment and retention of people is becoming more difficult post-Brexit because um, of of EU migrants. Um, But also they are getting on board with getting their contingency plans in place um, to get ready for the potential of no deal. And that is something that they are really concerned about. More broadly, why now? Um, It's because if you look at global growth, which I think for 2018 is predicted to be something like 3.9%, compared with 1.5% for the UK, Hmm. what is creating that drag on the economy? What is that handbrake? It is Brexit. It's not just Brexit. There's other kind of systemic productivity issues that we have to deal with um, in terms of infrastructure and skills and innovation. But overwhelmingly, there is this Brexit drag on the economy and we've got to get it sorted. Is it too late? I'd say absolutely not. I think... um, we're now moving into this phase where the UK government is establishing what it wants mm. for its future economic relationship. And that's absolutely the moment that you want businesses to be coming forward and say, OK, well, this is our idea for it. Is it? Or shouldn't you have been saying this for like the last 12 months? 
We've been saying a lot <laughs> over the last 12 months. Has government listened to you at all? I mean, have you had to get used to a world all of a sudden where government doesn't listen to the CBI? Absolutely not. I think transitional arrangements is a great example of this. So six months ago, well, OK, start eight months ago, if you went into government and you were talking about transitional arrangements, you were basically shown the door. You know, that was it was a banned term. You weren't allowed to mm. use it. Back in July, our Director General, Carolyn Fairburn, says we want to go, we want to stay in the single market and the customs union during transition. We want a transitional arrangement of about two years. Um, that's government policy now. You know. I thought it was Keir Starmer that persuaded them, not you. We were there first, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to say that. Um, we came out in the July, and, and that was our statement. Labour Party followed a couple of months later. Um, and actually, when we go out to Brussels and we talk to uh, the Commission, they are keen to remind us that that was never their plan. They never wanted to talk about transitional arrangements at the start of this year. They wanted to do that at the end of this year. Um, they're now doing it now. And, and that is down to business. And that is down to the fact that, you know, actually, we were just reflecting what our companies were saying to government on a daily basis in terms of if you want us to get ready for this, you're going to have to get these in place because actually we're really concerned about that cliff edge. Okay. We did. You might have noticed a while back we did a survey of MPs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things it showed was that a majority of Conservative MPs aren't happy with the idea of transition as it's being talked about now. Did that concern you? I think there is a very long list of things that concern me. <laughs> um, that is exactly uh, why we see those uh, drags on investment, for example, um, because those things concern businesses as well. Um, at the end of the day, though, am I as concerned about transition as I was? Um, probably not. I think we are moving in a really good direction. We've just got to um, wrap that up and make it reality as soon as possible because of those contingency plans. Because uh, so of our members, I think about 30, 40% of them already have contingency plans. A third of that 30 to 40% have already put them in place. Mm -hmm. um, what are the contingency plans? Are they all moving to Paris? They're not all moving to Paris. Um, they really, really vary on how you're set up as a company. There's no like sectoral rhyme or reason to it. It's how you operate as a company. James wants to move to Paris. Well, I was that's say, what's his interest. Well, it's the difference. Yeah. Some are going to move to Bonn and some are going to move to Madrid. I mean, they're all basically leaving these shores. No one moves to Bonn. Uh, don't they? Is that not? Oh, it's Frankfurt. I don't know. Bonn. I'm from the Berlin 80s. Now, I'm from the 80s. Bonn, Bonn was the capital of Germany in those days. Um, so look, look there, there, there is movement. Um, there is movement, not just of jobs, but of production, uh, of services and of capital um, moving to the EU. But it's not just that. Um, there is a little bit of onshoring that we talked about earlier in terms of companies looking to see what production they can move back to the UK. Okay. But comparably, that's very small compared with the offshoring, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, um, and actually, you know, when you get to that moving of people, that is a really complex process it's not just move the jobs it's find places places for people to live find places for yeah. their kids to go to school mm -hmm. uh find health insurance and stuff like that um it's also you know actually just saving up money there are companies saying okay we need to put a little bit of cash aside just in case things are going to get more expensive later on down the line um it's talking to supply chains um actually the most interesting thing that we've been hearing quite a lot of recently um is about stockpiling um, in a whole range of sectors, mm -hmm. companies saying, okay, if there are going to be huge delays at Dover and we have just-in-time supply chains, um, we need to start buying warehouses now to stock products. And that means we have to go and talk to our factories about when they can start producing those products to fill those warehouses. And we have to do that now. Um, we which... could do a whole podcast on bonded warehouses one day. Well, I, I was about to come to you because I know you love... 
queues at Dover. I love queues at Dover. I love bonded warehouses. This is the stuff that Brexit is made of. Is it going to happen? I mean, are there going to be massive queues at Dover? Um, well, unless we get the infrastructure in place, yes. Because Oh, but uh, if we stay in the customs union, then there's not, right? Well, even if we're in the customs union out of the single market, there will be more checks than there are now because people will have to make sure that we comply with the health and safety regulations, the environmental regulations. They're not just going to say, OK, we believe you, come on in. Why not? Because that's not how trade works. They have traded with us for decades. Exactly, which is we're why they're not going to trust British. us. I mean, people, we don't everyone, sell dodgy stuff. Well, no one trusts anyone else when it comes to trade, particularly when it comes to health and safety. Do you remember BSE? That sort of illustrated the levels of trust. Oh, I just said bonds and capital of Germany. Of course I remember BSE. I'm from, <laughs> from the 80s and 90s, aren't they? But, but I, think, I think this point about trust is a really, really important one and one that comes up uh, when we're talking in Brussels all the time because the little things, comparably... Um, actually really stick. So a good example of this is uh, there was a case with HMRC about how HMRC um, uh, messed up and there were Chinese goods coming into the UK at, at the wrong rate. Um, that has really undermined trust in how we would manage our custom system. Uh-huh. And when you're part of the EU, that is manageable. You get, you know, they find you. But at the end of the day, you're in their club. Yeah. So more broadly, I mean, you want to stay in the, the customs union and you want a, a deep relationship with the single market. Basically what the CBI wants out of Brexit is money, isn't it? They're all capitalists. You all want to be able to make as much profit as possible, the members of the CBI. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why you want an easy life. Is that fair to say? No, I don't think so. I think it's about um, making sure that jobs and growth can continue and that living standards can continue to rise and that wages can continue to rise and keep pace. Um, that's actually what our members talk to us much more about profit than about profit margins. It's about fundamentally, you know, Business is easier at the moment because we are part of um, the single market and customs union. And yeah. whatever we build to replace that needs to make sure that that business keeps being easy or costs and delays will happen. And, you know, people experience that. So, you know, if you're ordering like a T-shirt from America, mm. nine times out of ten, you end up having to go to the post office to rescue yes. it. and or uh, a you ring know, yeah. for your wife's 40th birthday. And you're suddenly... Really want, the only one she wants is from America... And so you order it, and then you have to pay for customs on top of the already extortionate cost. Exactly. And, and I don't know anybody that's happened to, but you know. <laughs> I can see that you're very affected by this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the experiment, experience that you're going to have outside the single market and customs union on everything for a consumer. Then you get to the business side, right? Mm-hmm. And for businesses, comparing their relationship with, say, Canada to uh, the EU... You know, to get even a type of car approved, you're suddenly whacking an extra £350,000 on top. It takes an extra three months to get your medicines approved in Canada compared to the EU. Just to sell, a, just we have one company tell us that just to sell a single machine, they make, you know, bespoke machines for factories. To sell that to Canada, just the approvals cost £5,000 more. But just on the customs union then, if you leave the single market to one side... Mm-hmm. Obviously, we don't know whether we're going to be in the customs union or a customs union. I'm not quite sure what the difference is, though everyone talks about it. But if we're in the customs union, say, and not a member state, we will be accepting the terms of trade deals we have no say over. Would you be happy with that? So we think that it might be possible to negotiate um, something extra so that we are involved in those trade deals, perhaps as a trilateral. We want more than what Turkey has, for example. They're not going to give us but a But actually, what we're, what we're saying is there is so much more to trade 
than trade deals. Um, and time and time again, I'll come back to this stat that, you know, um, Germany sells 4.7 times more to China than we do. There is so much more that we can be doing. And that's what our members bang on to us about all the time. Fundamentally, you know, you can't just say, let's trade with everyone. You've got to have a strategy. Has the government got a strategy? Because they seem to be saying, let's just trade with everyone, or mainly New Zealand, but, apart, you know, everyone as well. Uh, we think they they need to look at their strategy again in terms of prioritising. <laughs> you just said no, up. didn't you, there? You're saying the government has not got this strategy. So when Liam Fox says... Rubbish. I'm saying it's, it's, it's maybe not the strategy that we would be going after. When Liam Fox says that geography doesn't matter for trade in the way it used to, do you think he's right? I think geography absolutely matters. <laughs> That's a no. When Liam Fox says your members like playing golf better than exporting, is he right about that? Uh, no. And while we're playing... They should like golf more than exporting. Golf's better than exports. Maybe, maybe it's just me that I have honestly never had a conversation with a member about golf. Well, I have had a lot theme, about exports. When John Redwood a few years ago said, to the, I think it was to the CBI, that your, your firms will be punished if they support staying in the European Union... Is there, has there been a sense of that from this government that businesses will get picked on if they're too outspoken? Punishment, no. I think there were some real challenges um, prior to the election in terms of how government was engaging with business. Um, there was lots, and we hear from this from our members a lot, in terms of frustrations that they were going in and they were giving so much information so much data, so many anecdotes, so many examples and case studies, and no idea where that information was then going, what it was then feeding into. Um, you subsequently did have a white paper, which gave a little bit of clarity, um, but not huge amounts. If you're a big, complicated sector like energy, which is incredibly confusing as a, as a sector, you know, three paragraphs is not enough to give you, to give you any confidence. After the election, there was this big resurgence um, of business engagement that was really, really positive to see. Um, you know, set pieces like Chatham House obviously hit the headlines. Um, but, you know, we had members telling us we've had, you know, two, three visits from civil servants a week to our logistics warehouse. They're figuring out how it works. That really matters. I think we've got to make sure that we're not complacent about that then dropping off. Um, we actually need to, if we're looking at phase two and what we're going to negotiate for, we also need to look at how business can be involved in that. Um, not because, you know, we have any particular desire to be, but because actually this is going to get really technical at some point. Mm. don't know when, but at some point it's going to get really technical and it is really going to matter. And the business experience of how that's going to work on a factory and office floor is going to matter. You're the expert. Uh, you're the world-class expert on this stuff. Where does business fit into the whole Brexit shebang? Well, I mean, this is one of the key things in our politics now, isn't it, is the relative weighting of politics and economics. Because we, we went through a weird period post-referendum where politics drove everything and governments were making decisions purely for political reasons without an eye to business. Now, you could say we were compensating from a long period of time when business drove everything or the business drove too much. I suspect we might have overcompensated. And actually, we don't know where we've come to rest yet. Businesses seem fairly united that the kind of hard Brexit the government is talking about will be bad for the economy. But at the moment, the government doesn't seem to be moving. So that's actually the key to this process, is where, where that balance lies between taking into account political concerns and economic concerns. Where should that balance lie, in your opinion, as an expert on Brexit? Well, I suppose as someone who studies Brexit 
it's not my po- it's not my it's not my role to have an opinion, but it's my what I can say fairly clearly is current government policy will harm the economy and harm businesses because leaving the single market and the customs union is going to have a damaging effect on our trade with our closest trading partner. Yeah. So when the CBI says makes an intervention, saying you know as they did at the weekend, that should be given more weight than perhaps it has been up till now by the government. That's, That's all, up that to individual people, isn't it? I mean, if you remember during the you know. Nigel Farage, hats off to him during the referendum campaign, was honest enough to say on the Today programme, there are some things more honest, but more important than money. Yeah. When asked, when, when confronted ah. with the fact that cutting migration would lead to a hit to the economy. So that's that's an individual decision. Do you value sovereignty more than you value GDP? Some people might say yes. But it is worth being honest about this, I think. I mean, from our point of view at UK Changing Europe, what all we're saying is look at the evidence and make whatever decision you want. But let's not kid ourselves that leaving the single market in the customs union isn't going to cause some harm to our economy. There's a difference between the economy and business in a way, isn't there? The economy is a sort of more nebulous concept of business is actually jobs and money and wages and profits. And all there that is a difference. And actually, one of the things that you have to do is dig into this notion of the economy. Mm. Because one of the things we found in the referendum campaign was talking in terms of aggregates doesn't yeah. engage people. Oh. Uh, so, for instance, and you know they've been mentioned lots of times before, we've got a team that looks at the regional implications. It'll vary by region. Mm. What happens to this country after Brexit? Anyway, yeah, business. It's, business. It's important, right? Yeah. That's, the, that's the bottom line. Um, <coughs> I agree. <laughs> um, Is that an official CVI position? Yeah. Why aren't you at Davos? Well, I hate You're Davos because I've walk. never been invited. Yeah, you should be at Davos at the moment, shouldn't you? I wouldn't go if I were invited, obviously, he says. The CBI got people at Davos? Yes, we do. That comes back to the discussion about the, 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 the perception of business. Are they, what do they do at Davos? I bet they've all got their own trains at Davos. I mean, everyone's got their own train at Davos. I think it's quite snowy. I'm not sure how the trains work in Davos. I've never been. I, I've never I don't been know what it is. <laughs> I thought it was out, something out of Doctor Who. Um, <clears throat> uh, what do the CBI do at Davos? Um, we talk to obviously our members go, so we go and talk to uh, our members, uh, including some people who, you know, they might be based abroad or whatever it is. Um, and also we talk to the politicians. So Why obviously we will talk to the politicians um, who we want to talk to about our customs union stuff. I'm not allowed to go because I don't have the appropriate snow boots. <laughs> well, it's an answer. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, let's move on uh, to the How features. Can we possibly move on from that. Best thing. Oh. Worst thing. Nicole, what will be? Let's start with the worst thing. What's going to be the worst <laughs> thing about Brexit? So for me, the worst thing is probably just the waste. I feel like there's a lot of time being spent um, that could be spent on much more productive things. What's the worst case scenario for Brexit? And that's a slightly different question. But it's a difficult question. In terms of you know, business, the economy, I know we just said there's like different things, but you know, how bad could it get? So worst case scenario is um you get a no deal and that, that then no deal is mismanaged. Um so so that that is an extra layer to the problems of no deal. What that what that would mean mm. is costs, delays, confusion, um jobs. Jobs. Yeah. How jobs. many jobs? Hundreds of thousands of jobs. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> Both here and in Europe. <laughs> okay, that is pretty bad. What's going to be the best thing about Brexit? So we actually asked our members this. The most interesting comments were, we're looking at this in a different way. You know, we had a life sciences firm saying, you know, there is a huge pharmaceutical industry in the UK that employ 
tens of thousands of people, uh, really high-skilled jobs. Mm-hmm. It's a great benefit to the UK economy. We've never talked about it, and suddenly we are because it's at risk. And it's all these things where they've suddenly been put in the limelight, and people are going, oh, hey, that really matters. Um, you know, even CEOs are having to examine parts of their business that they never had to before because they have to go in and talk to David Davis about actually this is how our customs warehouse works. They, they're, they're embracing different parts and learning different parts of it that just sort of functioned before. But Nicole, the best thing about Brexit was you got to go to our Brexit pub quiz. I did enjoy I the Brexit pub quiz, that again. except I did really badly. It was a rubbish so. pub quiz, <laughs> terrible. And I'm not saying that just because I came last. But just on that, I mean, you, you say they're looking at it differently. Is, is business actually the key to... Is business going to save Brexit in the sense that after Brexit, whatever the deal we get, assuming we get a deal, the key to success as a nation is going to be trade. We're certainly going to deliver Brexit. Yeah. Businesses will be the ones delivering whatever changes from Brexit there will be. And that could save or improve. I mean, we talked about the sort of the, the perception of business. That could certainly improve the perception of business when business steps in and starts making loads of money for the country. Like business is already doing it. It's already looking at how it can make sure that whatever happens with the politics and the legislation, whatever it is, that it can make sure that people are still getting food on their shelves and still being able to buy the products. They, They are doing that. It's costing them a lot of money and a lot of time, but they are already doing that because that is the responsible thing to do. Will there come a time when people watch the Lego movie and go... Why is Lord Business the bad guy? Well, I don't understand. Why isn't Lord Business the good guy? You've not seen the Lego movie. Um, I, I don't know how long it's going to take us to reach the sort of seven-year-olds, um, but hopefully at some point we will, you know, we'll have another pub quiz and we'll be singing Everything is Awesome. Excellent. Good one. See, you have seen the Lego movie. It's good, isn't it? I have seen the um, Lego movie. That's, maybe that's a recommend. Maybe that leads on to the next, uh, the next uh, feature. That was smooth, wasn't it? I had that planned all along. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Recommendations for understanding Brexit. Anand, let's go to you first. Uh, come on, it's not going to be another one of your researchers, no, actually, is it? I think yesterday was the anniversary of David Cameron's Bloomberg speech, and oh, it's yeah. well worth a reread because Ooh. it puts all this into context quite nicely. And actually, reading the speech now, until you get to the final page of it, it's quite a reasoned defence of EU membership. That's possibly one of the best defences he gave. Uh, Nicole, I want to understand Brexit. Mm-hmm. What should I watch, read, do? So I think people should be reading uh, Tony Connolly's stuff at the RTE. Oh, I okay. think people read a lot about uh, Tory party shenanigans in the UK press. Mm. But actually a good third of this debate is happening in the Republic of Ireland. Um, uh, the other third obviously happening in Brussels. They had a train, a CBI-branded train. I wonder if that's where Boat Leave got the bus idea from. Um, Nicole was good enough to send a picture of the train through, and I'll tweet that out. Head to my account, which is at Political Yeti, or the UK and a Changing Europe account, which is at UK and EU, to see it in all its glory. And if you have any pictures of unlikely modes of transport branded with the logos of Brexit-related organisations, please send them to me via the email address UK in a Changing Europe podcast at gmail.com. As is now traditional, at that point in the outro, the cat has walked in. Would you like a train cat? No. Okay. Um, lots of interesting stuff. Oh, the cat's now sat on the computer. That's really helpful, cat. Go away. 
um, well, I hope that's still going to work. Um, oh, he's throwing me right off me, me, me stride there. So, yes, lots of interesting stuff in that podcast. It's clear that the CBI uh, and therefore big business in general are getting very frustrated with the government over Brexit, hence their uh, intervention. It's also clear that uh, it matters. Some pretty stark figures re companies' feelings about Brexit from Nicole. 40% saying it's had a negative impact on investment and the same amount saying it's had a negative impact on recruitment and retention of staff. 40% is a lot. Um, regular listeners will know that I am no fan of polls, but that result is, I think, out with the margin of error when it comes to suggesting that something negative is going on I suppose the question is whether there is or will be a positive impact to outweigh the negative which of course is quite possible hopefully we'll get uh, somebody well we've had uh, John Mills on from, from big business if you like suggesting that it will be a positive thing and uh, we'll maybe get some more folk with that point of view going forward um, also some good chat in there about golf about Davos because we recorded it whilst Davos was going on, and indeed about the Lego movie. That is a mixture that you just don't get anywhere else. Um, if you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. I must mention that the music was again Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. If you are a musician or of a musical bent, uh, why not make me some new music or a jingle or two and send them to that email address, UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com I would be very grateful uh, we'll see if anybody does that in the next couple of weeks because we are back in a fortnight on February the 14th, Valentine's Day there will be nothing more romantic that day than staying in and listening to the latest Brexit Breakdown podcast featuring me talking to Labour's leader in the House of Lords Baroness Angela Smith um, so come back in two weeks for that for now this has been the brexit breakdown podcast with me james miller supported by king's college london and funded and supported by the economic and social research council thank you